Well, how are you guys doing? Hope you had a good week. Uh, glad, always glad when Wednesdays roll around. I just, I enjoy being with you guys. I enjoy this time that we get to uh, open up scripture. We get to think hard and um, we get to do this thing that followers of Jesus have been doing for centuries, coming together in the communal reading of scripture, uh, believing that God is actively at work in that process. We've, uh, we've been in a series here over uh, the past number of weeks. This is our week five um, of, of a series looking at common misconceptions, or we've been really calling them lies, because it's a misconception can sound safe. Um, a lie gets to the idea that it's destructive, it's distortive in some way, and we, we've continued to base... Um, each week on this premise that there is nothing more important that you could possibly um, get right than who is God and what is he like? Because that colors and influences everything about us. And so we've been looking at these different common lies about God that are really, really easy to kind of make their way into our hearts and our minds when we don't even necessarily know it. Um, week one, we talked about the kinds of lies that we're going to confront. If you remember, we said some of the lies we're going to confront are just like outright lies. Um, you know, God's love has to be earned. But then there are some lies of kind of what we called mixed bag lies. Lies where it's like, well, yeah, there's kind of truth to that, but you're missing a piece. Yeah, there's some truth. And so it kind of requires more work to sort of sort through and really think carefully about it. And, and tonight, I think, falls into the mixed bag lie category that, that we're looking at. This is uh, this idea that God doesn't want me to act until I know his will. Now, I said it's mixed bag because you might hear that and be like, well, isn't God's will important? Yeah. So, but, but there's something underlying here that, that I think a lot of us, I know in my own walk with Jesus, I've been tripped up here because of how I've thought about the will of God and his either call for me to act or his call for me to wait and just like how I've understood all of that. And so that's what I want to jump into tonight. Now, before we do that, any time the great uh, philosopher Socrates, you know, always said things like, before you talk about things, define your terms. Okay, define what, what you're talking about. So as, as we think about, okay, like the will of God, that could be kind of ambiguous. Uh, we could mean kind of different things. And so we, we want to be careful that we don't engage in what's called equivocation, where we equivocate on the meaning of a word. So let's, I want to give you some words, some like phrases. They're not, they're not in the Bible, okay? They're not, but it's a way to help us understand Kind of the layers. Does that make sense of what we mean when we talk about the will of God? So the first thing that I would say that we see in Scripture when, when we think of it is, is what you might call um, God's will of decree. D-E-C-R-E-E. -E, to, to decree something. God's will of decree. This has to do with what things that God has um, ordained. What things because he is sovereign... He's all-powerful. He's in charge. What are the things that God has set out as things that he will accomplish or will be accomplished that are an element of his will of decree? Because what God has ordained or decreed 
can't be thwarted. Uh, what he wills in this area will happen. Um, listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 9. Um, Remember what happened long ago, Yahweh says, for I am God and there is no other God. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So that, that speaks to that element of God's will. That's his uh, will of decree, what he says he will accomplish for, for sure. Now, his will of decree doesn't... Um, it doesn't negate free choice. Sometimes, in fact, you even see this idea of God's will of decree and human free choice, and, and they're, they're mixed. They're, they're, they're both fully intact, neither one compromising the other. Uh, the apostle Peter, after Jesus' uh, death and burial and his resurrection, and the, the, the Holy Spirit has fallen on this rag band tag of uh, followers, and they're engaging in this idea of bringing the message of Jesus to the city where this happened, Jerusalem. Uh, in the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 27, Peter says this, For truly in this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, uh, uh, there were gathered together against, he's speaking to God, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had proposed, had, had uh, your purpose had predestined to occur. So we see both of those elements, God's will of decree, that this is what God chose long ago beforehand, and yet we see this idea that people still freely chose to engage in this idea. But God's will of decree speaks to that which God is unconditionally accomplishing um, throughout, throughout history. So the second thing of, of his will isn't uh, his will of decree, but it's, it's his will of desire. God's will of desire. This refers to what God commands of his creatures. This refers to, to how things ought to be in the world. Now, the difference um, from God's will of decree, which can't be thwarted, is God's will of, of desire, how he wants us to live, we can disregard it. I can, I, I can disregard God's will of desire in how he's calling me to live or behave, engage with others, think about whatever it might be. Um, Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my will or the will of my father who in heaven will enter. So that's this like obeying versus dismissing God's will. Or we think about uh, the author of Hebrews. He ends his, his whole letter with, with the benediction, and he brings up this idea of, I, am I being faithful to God's will of desire? Hebrews 13, 20. Uh, now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus Christ our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. That's that will of desire. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Now, the third way, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time on tonight, because I think this is one that most of us, when we think about God's will, this is where we go. And this would be um, God's will of direction. God's will of direction. Uh, what, what does God want me to do with my life? What, what job should I take? Um, where, where should I live? Who, who should I date? Where should I go to school? Those are all the questions that come about when we ask this, this question of, um, I want to know God's will of direction. I want to know God's individual specific will for Brent, for my life, for the decisions that I make day in and day out. Now, the problem when we immediately think about this one is, is that we tend to think of God's will of direction in the exact same way as, or very much like we do, um, with his, his will of desire, except he's hiding it. And what he expects from us is that we sort of, in some really unique way, we, we find it in dreams or visions or fleeces or impressions or open doors or random Bible verses or casting lots or you know, shivers in your liver or whatever it might be, right? That, that I have to find some tool so that I can access God's will of direction in my life. And see, if, if that's true, then here's the thing. My relationship to, to God's directional will, it's, it feels like a corn maze. You ever done those? Uh, my kids this last fall, they, I think it was the youth group. Pastor Tim, I see him stealing food off the back table. You don't belong in here. You don't belong in here. Get away from the food. Didn't, no, didn't our, kid, our kids, uh, my son's in high school, and there was, there was a corn maze event that the high school students did, and they went out to this corn maze, and they're going through it. I can't remember the name of the farm. It was pretty cool, but you obviously, okay, yeah. It wasn't Harvest Farm. It was a different one. I, I don't know. Maybe it was Harvest Farm. He, he just told me where to go, so I drive him out there with a couple friends, and they're running through these corn mazes, and I talked to him afterwards, and like he's a, I'm very claustrophobic. My son's a little claustrophobic, and he was like, I panicked a little bit. You know, there were sort of these moments of fear, uh, but it's so tricky because you're going and you're trying to find your way out, but but there are all these obstacles to you figuring out like how do I get through, reach the end of this of this corn maze, and sometimes that that's can, that can kind of feel when I think about God's will of direction. That's kind of how it feels. Or like walking a tightrope, you know, um, where it's like, it's this, man, it'd be so easy to just absolutely miss it and, and fall off. Or maybe like hitting a bullseye. There's so much room for error. How do you live? What's the sense of feeling you have when you view God's will like that? Or maybe it's like the old uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books. Do you remember those novels? Anyone, anyone read Choose Your Own uh, Adventure novels? I remember my brother had a whole bunch of them uh, when I was like in middle school and he was in high school. And remember it was always like, okay, you're, you're reading along and it says things like, okay, you can either uh, you know, flee from the place, if you want to do that, turn to page 23, or you can hide in this cave, turn to page 62. So you all came out, hide in the cave, turn to page 62, and you realize, oh, the cave's in a volcano, I just died. And you're like, ah. You know, <laughs> it's fun for kids' novels, but when I view the will of God that way in my life, I mean, I'm paranoid. 
I live just with the sense of, of anxiety, of fear, of, oh, man, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to fall off the tight wire. I'm not going to find my way out of the course maze. I'm going to miss the bullseye. I'm going to make the wrong decision, and my life is going to end, or at least it's, it's not going to be what it could. I'm always going to be living on the second best kind of existence. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you, have you sensed that as you've thought about God's will in your own life? See, many of us feel that we'll take the wrong job, uh, buy the wrong home, declare the wrong major in school, marry the wrong person, and suddenly my life is going to blow up. Listen, listen to one, how one author put it. He said this, the, the conventional understanding of God's will, he's talking about what we're talking about here, the corn maze thing, um, defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, which is God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, and the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness if we choose wrongly. <laughs> that's the thing that's always on our minds. We may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. Right? Do you know that feeling? Like, I, I have felt that numerous times in my life. And see, this oftentimes, sort of this typical way that Christians think about God's will of direction, I would suggest is the wrong way to think about God's will, uh, to think about God, I should say, and God's will for your life. Not just because I don't like it. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's the biblical model. In fact, if, if you do think of God's will this way, expecting God to reveal some um, hidden will of direction, it's sort of an invitation that you're accepting to a life of disappointment and a life of being indecisive all of, all of your life. So trusting God's will of decree, that's good, right? Following God's will of desire, that's obedient. But waiting, this sort of just waiting, not acting for God's will of direction, that makes your life a mess, so let me suggest four reasons, as I, as I kind of think about my own life, these ring true with me anyway, but four reasons why I tend to live in this sort of stagnated place in, 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 in life at times because I'm, I'm failing to act, I'm failing to behave because I'm thinking, well, I gotta wait for God's will. I'm waiting for the sign. I'm waiting for the clear word. I'm waiting for something. Like, why do, why do I do that? And there are four things that come to mind. Number one is, we want to please God, right? Many of us love God, and we're not trying to be difficult. We just don't want to miss God. We love him. We know that our good resides with him, and I think, man, I don't, I don't want to miss that for my life, or I don't want to let him down. Um, if, we're, you know, if I'm supposed to study engineering, well, I don't, I don't want to study you know, Renaissance literature, 
If I'm supposed to move to Wichita, I don't want to move to Nashville, right? Because I, I want to please God. I want to do what, what he wants for me in my life. So it's good that we want to please God. But, and we'll see this later as we go, this is not how God directs us to, to act. And in fact, he actually just pushes back against it and says, that's being unproductive in life. And he calls us away from that kind of behavior, so we need to stop putting ourselves through this agony of over-spiritualizing every single decision in our life. The second reason, I think, why, why I have obsessed in my life and waited uh, about finding God's will of direction is that um, we want perfect fulfillment. I want the perfect one. <laughs> I don't want to settle for anything. Let's see, if you believe that God has promised you a life here on earth that's like a five-star hotel um, number one, you're going to be fearful of the normal struggles that are going to come. And you're going to be miserable when the normal struggles do come. Um, see, f- faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus does not guarantee that everything is going to go our way. Remember uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. You remember what people called he- Hebrews 11? It's the faith hall of fame, people oftentimes call it that. It's just this list of like this guy, you know, this guy, this woman, they had faith and they did this and this person had faith and, and it's all this sort of faith hall of fame. One, one commentator has, has pointed out, I love this, he said the first three people that are mentioned in chapter 11 of you know, the faith hall of fame is um, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And then he pointed out and he said, um, Abel had faith and he died. Enoch had faith and he didn't die. Noah had faith and everyone died. <laughs> um, just having faith, true faith, significant faith that God uses does not guarantee that I have this life of just roses and flowers and beautiful things and easy, easy life. The, the, the uh, third reason, I think, why I, I tend to move in this direction is that I just have too many choices. Um, I'm convinced that previous generations and some other cultures today that are still around today that don't have as many uh, choices, that they didn't struggle as much as we struggle to, quote-unquote, discover, discover God's will for my life because they just didn't have as many choices. Um, I think this is largely an issue for, for modern Western middle class culture. This is this this issue is is is, is exacerbated by our culture. There's a, a professor named Barry Schwartz. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, and uh, he he starts out by saying this. And he kind of gets us into where he's going, but uh, Professor Schwartz tells about a, about a trip to a local uh, moderately sized grocery store, and, and this is what he found. He found 285 varieties of cookies, 13 sports drinks, 65 box drinks, 85 kids' juices, 75 iced teas, 95 types of chips and pretzels, 50 kinds of bottled, 15 kinds of bottled water, 80 different pain relievers, 40 options for toothpaste, 150 lipsticks, 360 types of shampoo, 90 different cold remedies, 230 soups, 75 instant gravies, 275 varieties of cereal, 64 types of barbecue sauce, and 20 22 types of frozen waffles. 
Um, Professor Schwartz says his, his view as dealing with students who, who are making big life choices that he works with, he says, um, my students have multiple interests. They, they've, they've got a lot of capabilities. They've got lots of talent, lots of opportunity. The world is wide open to these students that he deals with all the time. He says, but instead of revealing, uh, of, of being revealed in this freedom or finding this freedom, they find this experience, he says, agonizing. Absolutely agonizing. Schwartz goes on to say this. This is kind of extreme, but it's, it's interesting. He says, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that my students might be better off with a little less talent, with a little more of a sense that uh, they owed it to their families to settle down back home or to even a dose of Depression-era necessity. Take the secure job. Get on with it, he says. With fewer options and more constraints, many trade-offs would be illuminated uh, and there would be less self-doubt less of an effort to justify decisions, more satisfaction, and less second-guessing of the decisions one made. See, I would suggest that when we're given too many options in life, decision-making, it's, it feels like pain, not pleasure. You know what I mean by that? And then we tend to also just like stop. I tend to not make any choices because I don't want to make the wrong one. <laughs> There's so many out there. Maybe I need to have more time. Maybe I need more information. I, I just need to think more. So we, again, we have to be careful not to spiritualize if you or I find myself in this place, this sort of day after day, year after year, inability to make decisions um, because I just have too many options and I'm bad at making a decision because that means saying no to something else. Not spiritualizing by saying, well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me which one, you know, sort of thing. The fourth reason that I think we, we obsess and we wait over this about finding God's specific will is that we, we just lack courage. I lack courage. Um, sometimes when I pray to know God's will of direction, uh, I'm really saying the coward's prayer. <laughs> Um, Lord, tell me what to do so that nothing will bad, bad will happen to me and I won't have to face any difficult situations. See, I want to know how everything is going to work out and how it's all going to go and that everything is going to be okay. This is why oftentimes, how many of you have done this where you, you feel like you're stepping into something that's the wise thing to do? Maybe it's God, you think it's God's will or whatever, and things are difficult, and one of the first questions in your mind is, did I make the wrong choice? Because our assumption is, if I'm following Jesus, it's smooth sailing, <laughs> right? Um, one, one, of my, one of the most beautiful stories of this is Esther in the Old Testament. This, this character of Esther, who um, Esther comes along, she and, and, and the rest of the Jewish people are in exile. Persia is currently ruling them. This is like a generation before you know, Nehemiah, uh, and those guys come back and rebuild. And, and so she's in exile, and um, she wins a rather odd beauty contest, and she's going to become one of the queens of, of King Xerxes, king of Persia. And, uh, but, but Xerxes has kind of a right-hand man uh, named Haman, and Haman hates the Jews, and he comes up with a plot to, to kill them all through a legal loophole, and he gets Xerxes to kind of sign off on it, tricks him. Well, Esther's cousin, older cousin Mordecai, finds out about this plot. 
And he knows of no other way of anyone who can intervene except his young cousin. So he goes to her and says, you've, you've got to do this. You need to step up. You need to step into this. And first, Esther refuses in the text. She says, no way, I'm not stupid. <laughs> that, that's, that's dangerous because, see, for her to enter the king's palace without an invitation, according to Persian law, it's execution. Unless he extends the scepter to save her life. So it's hugely risky, okay? This is one of those choices. What decision do I make? What's the will of God? It's very, very risky, and this is what we read, Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them, this is Esther's uh, messengers or emissaries, reply to Esther, say this, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. What would you do if you were Esther in that situation? Um, would you pray for, what should I do, God? <laughs> uh, would you pray for a sign from heaven? Would you, would you wait for, for God to somehow uh, reveal his will? Would you question whether or not you should even step into this? Because God clearly wouldn't want me to walk into anything difficult and challenging, potentially deadly. Verse 15, we read this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. The, the prayer and fasting isn't to determine if she should do it. The prayer, she's, gonna, she's committed. She made the decision because she believes it's the wise thing to do, the prudent thing to do. She's asking for prayer and fasting for help me to get it done, to really go through that, because it's very, it's very risky. See, like we said earlier, waiting for God's will, if Esther would have, quote unquote, waited for God's will, I'm gonna look for a sign, I'll look for, you know, kind of multiple things, I'll, I'll you know, I'll look for all these, well, I'll, I'll find the magic eight ball, and I'll ask that, maybe God will speak through that, or maybe I'll look for a bumper sticker, something that says on someone's, you know, looking for some way, her life and theirs would have been an absolute mess. There's a funny, it's, it's, a, it's a fake news story, but there's kind of a funny uh, news story. You might have seen this a, a couple years ago going around. But it, it, um, this is what it can feel like if you live on the assumption that God doesn't really want you to act until you know God's will of direction for kind of everything in your life. It says this, uh, Walter Houston described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him a clear direction about what to do with his life. Quote, he hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd started the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back, quote, because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remain in the center of God's perfect will. That was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills he never got around to using, says longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side to him too. 
I always told him, take a risk. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his credit, they say, Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage for the couple's modest home. <laughs> it's, it's a joke, but do you get the feel of that? Like, like you ever wonder, like, is that going to be, like, that's an extreme, but is that, like, how I'm living my life? If I were just to keep going forward in how I think about making decisions and engaging in God's world and looking for God's will, is that kind of like my story? Like, that would be haunting, because <laughs> you read it, and it seems ridiculous, but you kind of see pieces of it, maybe even in yourself there. That's how life can feel when I believe the lie that God doesn't want me to act until I know his will of direction in any given situation. So let me give, let me give you a, um, I've been t- trying to kind of deconstruct that. Let me give you a, a concrete picture that I think it's pretty, really easy to understand that will give you a totally different model about thinking about God's will and acting and all that sort of thing. Um, Psalm chapter 32. And this will be up on the screen. Psalm chapter 32, start in verse 8. Go slowly with me through this, because this is, it's simple, but it's profound. Um, Now, as we go through verse 8, notice all of the verbs that relate to God, um, God's direction. Okay, underline them in your, if you've got your Bible, whatever. So verse 8, it says, I will, there's the first one, I will instruct you, I will teach you, you in the way you should go. That sounds pretty good so far. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. So three, three verbs used right here of saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to instruct, teach, and counsel. Gosh, that's all the things I want. Yes, please. Please do that. Please counsel, teach, and instruct me, God, on what, what I should do. Now, the next verse, he's going to go on, but he's going to start with a contrast of how he's not going to do that. Okay, so verse 9 is explaining how he's not going to counsel, teach, and instruct. Verse 9. Do not be like the horse or mule, which have no, what's the word? Hmm. Understanding. But must be not instructed, taught, or counseled. They must be controlled by what? A bit and a bridle, or they will not come to you. Um. What this means is that God promises to teach, counsel, and instruct us. And the means he's going to use to do that is what? What's the means by which he's going to counsel, teach, and instruct you in all your life? Through your understanding. That's the promise of the text. The way he's going to counsel, lead, and instruct you is through your understanding. The very thing that a horse or a mule lacks and so how do you have to get a horse or mule to do things to engage? I throw something, you know, a bit in their mouth, a bridle around their head. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thought, oh, I wish I had a bit in a bridle. I'd bring someone up here and pull them back and forth or something. But here's my question. Do you know how many times I have prayed for God's will in my life? And you know what I've said? God, just tell me what to do. Just pull me and I'll do it. Just, just say it. Just, you know, I'm totally open. I'm totally, like, ready. I'll do whatever you want. Just pull, God, and I'll go. And he didn't do it. 
And I thought, huh, he really missed out because I was really available for him at that moment. But seriously, how many of you guys have prayed that very thing? Just make it clear. Push me, pull me, whatever. Treat me like a stupid beast who's not made in the image of God and has no understanding. And God says, I would never do that to you. And at times, it's frustrating. He's like, but do it, because I just want the end. I just want to get there. I want the school. I want the job. I want the, you know, whatever. That's what I want. And God says, I want something much more than that. Those things will burn. Those things will go away. There's something deeper, something truer that I'm going for. This is why God says so much in the Bible about gaining, and the word is wisdom. Gain wisdom. Why, so I can be like a super smart guy? No, because the way that I'm going to teach, counsel, and guide you in life is through your understanding. And so if your understanding is not honed for wisdom, you'll be looking for fleece and magic dice and creepy weird stuff, and you'll miss me. You'll miss me your whole life. See, and this doesn't simply mean acquiring content. Wisdom is not about getting facts. It's, it's not even knowledge. Knowledge is sort of just the raw data. It's the tools. How do you apply those tools? That's wisdom. I'll give you proof for that. Um, Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, look at it, because it's funny when you read verse 4 and verse 5 together. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says this. Now, remember, Proverbs are these sort of pithy pearls of wisdom from the wise, okay, that, that we're, we're told to learn because this is sort of wise living. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or else you'll be like him. Anyone have their Bible open and see what verse 5 says? Answer a fool according to his folly, uh, or he will be wise in his own eyes. I remember one of my professors one time in seminary, we were, we were talking about wisdom, and he went to this passage, and he, and he read these two, and he said, so which one is it, Brent? And I mean, I'm sure it was a trick question. I'm like, both? Um, and he said, the wise person knows. I'm like, that doesn't help me. <laughs> but see, wise living isn't about looking up in a reference book an answer. It's about becoming a kind of person who knows when to apply verse 4, and knows when to apply verse 5. It's the wise person. It's becoming. It's not, do I take this job or do, or do I take that job? I want you to become the kind of person who knows how to make decisions in life. Because I do not want a mule or a horse. I want a son and a daughter. Does that make sense? But so often I beg, treat me like, that. Treat me like the horse and mule. <laughs> I long for that. And see, here's the key. That's why the majority of the time when the New Testament writers talk about the will of God, do you know what things they talk about in context? Vast majority of the time. I'll just give you some examples. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. It is God's will. Oh, this should be good. You can tell me where to go. That uh, you should be sanctified. And then he goes on, you know, avoid sexual immorality. Each one of you should learn to control your own body in the way that is holy, honorable, not passionate like the lustful pagans who don't know. You know, so the first way, and so this is one, if, if you want to, like, make notes. The first way that you say, okay, how do I become 
that kind of person? Well, the first way he says is be sanctified. Set yourself apart. Understand that who you are is a sacred being and all your activities are sacred things. This has to do with my life, sometimes my, my moral life. It has to do with my character. Is that refined? Do, am I allowing Jesus to refine my character, who I am? Am I doing simple things like Jesus said, Less your, let your yes be yes and your no be no? Maybe I just start there. I struggle with that sometimes, letting my yes be yes and my no be no. And he says that's part of becoming, of becoming sanctified. Number two, we're told that we are to always rejoice, pray, and give thanks. That if I do that, I'm becoming that kind of person, the wise person. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. Oh, every time they keep talking about will, they talk, they're talking about who I'm becoming. Why is God's will so focused on who I'm becoming? Number three, if you personally get to know God on a personal level, relational connection, you personally get to know God, that that will translate into what, what Paul talks is, is just being effective in life, bearing good fruit. Colossians 1.9 says this, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Man, it's about my character again. It's about that. Um, to please him. Oh, we talked about that earlier. We always want to please him. This is how we do it. In all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then number four, one way that I become a certain kind of person is that I learn to live moment by moment of my day through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.17 says, Then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the will of the Lord. See, why all of these verses are about how we live, here, here's why it's so important. The most important decision, because we're talking about the will of God, most important decision that you and I will face every single day is a daily decision of whether or not I'm going to live as an apprentice of Jesus and die to self. That is the most important, more than, what, you know, should I get my oil changed today? Should I paint the you know, kitchen blue? Or should I do this? Or should I do... No. The most important decision you will make every single day is that daily decision is, am I going to live that moment as an apprentice? And here's the thing. Sometimes I'm not an apprentice of Jesus. I'm not. Some days I, go, I get to the end of my day and I go, I didn't learn anything from Jesus today. Because an apprentice learns. An apprentice is learning throughout the day from their master. Did I learn from Jesus today better about how to do my family? Did I learn from Jesus today about better to how to handle conflict? Did I learn from Jesus today about better to deal with these frustrations and have patience? Am I being an apprentice of Jesus? Sometimes I get to the end of my day and I'm like, nah, I wasn't a student at all today. <laughs> I didn't learn jack. <clears throat> See, if tomorrow you seek first the kingdom, seek first Jesus' kingdom, which means Jesus' rule in your life. If you do that tomorrow, learning to live as an apprentice, then you are free to 
to choose any job you want, any school you want, move to any place you want. Then you might go, well, isn't, isn't that leaving God out of it? He just, maybe we just talked about it's really important, and that sort of feels like you can just do whatever you want. No. Because here's the secret. You become what you behold. Whatever you behold is what you will become. God wants us to behold him in his glory. Why? So I can be transformed into his likeness. He wants me to be like him. Because it's all about becoming. It's not about which decision ultimately you make. It's about how did you make it? Who are you becoming through that? That's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, all of us, who with unveiled faces contemplate or behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, here's, the, here's kind of the big takeaway, the big point. If God just pulled us around by a bit and a bridle, we wouldn't need to focus on him. We wouldn't need to delight in him. I wouldn't need to behold him. That would not need to be my focus because he would just tell me where to go like a pawn on a, on a chessboard. But he says, I want you to behold my glory. That's how you'll find out. How, so, Do I have a will for your life? Yeah. But I'm not withholding it for you because I want you to do tricks. I want you to become someone who can understand it and live it out in your life. God says, I'm not giving you a crystal ball. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you my son. Meditate on him. Behold him and become like me. And so what we're going to do tonight is one little mini practice of beholding Jesus. We're going to take the element, the element of bread, which represents his, his body that was broken for us. And we're taking the element of the cup, which is his blood shed for us. And this is, here's how I want us to think about this tonight. As you do this, this is, this is um, a practice of beholding Jesus, looking into Jesus, because this speaks to his heart. This speaks to his intentions to us and for us. And so I was asked this question, what is the will of God? It's to behold Christ that I might become like him. And then all those other things fall into place. That's what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, all the other stuff, don't worry about it. It'll fall into place. <laughs> but I oftentimes start with the end part, all the other stuff. So I would invite you during this next song to one of the tables around the room, uh, grab one of the elements if you have begun this journey with Jesus. If you haven't, you're just kind of checking things out. You could just let that pass right by. And then find a spot in the room and go back to your seat. Take it on your own, wherever you would like. And then engage in worship and let's behold Jesus. Amen. And now a good word, a benediction to send us out. I pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, that he would cause his face to shine upon you so that this week you can behold him in new ways and you see the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Amen.